the development of thought um, that is so productive in this classic essay of Freud's um, on melancholia and mourning it develops out of the 1914 essay on narcissism through Freud's thought from the narcissism essay to the melancholia essay and then is taken up by post-Freudians uh, like Abraham and Torok whom we'll be looking at next week and, and the week after that Julia Kristeva. So they've gone back to Freud's essay, found it very, very productive. Um, and even when they're quarreling with Freud or disagreeing or, or, or criticizing aspects of it, is it where they're going back and finding elements in, his, in the essay. And of course, as so often with Freud, there are contending lines of thought in the essay. Uh, and uh, to some extent, Le Planche's commentary brings that out quite well. Um, there are contending lines of thought about the relationships between uh, mourning and melancholia that he wants to set up. And of course, he positions melancholia on the one hand in relationship to the, quote, normal process of mourning, and on the other hand to what seems to be its opposite, mania. Um, so in a way, you've got three terms, or actually four, I suppose, because uh, he, he establishes a series of dis distinctions between normal mourning, quote-unquote, um, which is um, occasioned by the loss of a love object uh, and which he says at various points is fully conscious, knows what it's about, knows what it's lost, as it were, and which has almost, he implies, and that you can sort of see that that um, rhymes to some extent with our common sense uh, ideas about mourning. It has an end, a built-in end, mourning, so that uh, we don't not consider mourning, even though it has a range of symptom or expressions that we would in other contexts consider as symptoms of something, like withdrawal from engagement in the outside world, a loss of interest in, in normal activities, etc., um, extended periods of grieving, etc., um, might be considered um, symptomatic in other contexts, but we take it for granted, okay? It's normal. In fact, there's this kind of common sense of wisdom. If you don't mourn, if you don't grieve, that's the problem, you know, um, uh, particularly in our culture. But I think it's true of traditional cultures as well, where there was a much more elaborated um, uh, rituals for mourning. You know, if somebody dies, you wear black for 12 months, you know, you wear certain things, you behave in certain ways, you don't engage in certain activities to be seen at the theatre or at some place of entertainment. Uh, when you were in official period of mourning, and there was a period of mourning, stipulated by custom, etc., would be considered, um, you know, sort of quite um, improper and unfeeling, even unethical, etc. So mourning was a, a proper place within the, the culture and its um, recognitions and its values. And then there's melancholia, and he's making sense of melancholia by relating it to this, as it were, normal uh, uh, process that people undergo when they've lost a loved object. Um, and it's a way of kind of bringing melancholia, the notion of melancholia, which is a traditional term, um, into, uh, into some sort of con sharper conceptual focus. That it's a kind of mourning, or it's in some senses like mourning. It overlaps with mourning, and yet there are other things that are differentiating it from mourning. Okay. So that's initially, he sets up that mourning, melancholia, um, are both a correlation and a distinction between them. And then, he's, and then between the two, he puts this borderline category, if you like, of what he calls pathological mourning, which is mourning that is halfway to melancholia, um, but isn't quite melancholia, um, because melancholia has uh, another distinct uh, feature or process 
um, that differentiates it. Uh, okay, and, um, and then there's the question of mania, if you like, on the other side of melancholia, <laughs> from mourning. Uh, there's the question of mania, um, which in terms of its obvious uh, uh, symptoms um, and expressions, its characteristic expressions, would seem to be completely antithetical to, to melancholia. Um, uh, and yet Freud wants to say um, they're intimately related. In fact, he says uh, they're dealing with the same complex of, 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 um, of feelings um, and of uh, uh, psychic material, but in different ways. And in, this is borne out to some extent and is recognized clinically, both in psychoanalysis and outside psychoanalysis. Um, when people talk about manic depressive, they, they link the two terms together. And depression is a sort of contemporary term for what Freud and tradition has called melancholia. Today tends to be called um, within the uh, contemporary nosologies, um, uh, depression. And so we're, we're not unfamiliar with the notion of uh, manic depressive um, cycles in which somebody goes from uh, in intense states of depression to uh, a kind of manic high and then back again, you know. Um, and the, 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 the um, volatility of these states in which opposites can sort of um, tip over into each other then poses a problem for understanding and, 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 and obviously for treatment. Okay, so we've got those, if you like, four terms, mourning, pathological mourning, melancholia, mania, and uh, the question of their interconnections and differentiations. So uh, let me just say a little bit about, or recap a little bit about what Freud says about uh, what, you know, the, the initial way he sets up the mourning melancholia um, relationship, okay. Now, um, he says in many cases they have the same exciting causes, the same environmental um, circumstances, loss of a loved person, um, or it could be a, a, more than a person or other than a person, uh, a, a love object of, a, of another kind, a cause, a country, uh, an ideal um, that, that you feel has been tarnished or lost or whatever. So around this, so both mel melancholia, he's beginning to kind of position by saying it's like mourning and it's about loss and how, how the melancholic subject is dealing with a loss in the same way as as we can see in a very obvious way people are when they're mourning. Mourning, however, we don't regard as pathological, even if it shares some, some uh, behaviours in common with melancholia, um, and we rely confidently on its being overcome after a certain lapse of time. So it's almost as if it's got an, an end point built in, as if it's almost a teleological process. You mourn, uh, and, and so mourning can kind of have... Um, two different meanings in, in a way, particularly in this discussion. Um, if, you, if somebody's mourning something, in one sense it means they're grieving. Okay? Uh, uh, it can become synonymous with the notion of grieving and all the things associated with grieving, weeping, um, uh, dis expressions of distress, um, etc. Um, but um, it's also a, a kind of intentional process. We're mourning somebody um, uh, and there's a kind of implicit um, end point built into it. There will become a point when mourning will cease, okay? when we will have finished mourning, when we will have come to terms with that loss. Um, and uh, in the differentiation from melancholia, um, that becomes, I think, quite important. And they're also a source of confusion, I think, in, in Freud's essay. Melancholia, then, he goes on to say, 
It gives you a list of its, of its attributes. Um, a painful dejection, number one. Number two, cessation of interest in the outside world. Number three, loss of capacity to love. Number four, an inhibition of activity. Number five, a lowering of self-regard, self-reproaches. Number six, an expectation of punishment. And he says five and six are absent in mourning, but the first four, um, right up to and including the notion of an inhibition of the ego in its ordinary everyday activities, these, these are shared um, attributes between mourning and melancholia. And it, you know, we, commonsensically, we, we make sense of that inhibition by saying it's due to the subjects, the mourning subjects' devotion to their mourning. They have nothing left over for their other interests. They're completely absorbed in this process of coming to terms with their loss. And he comments, as he does all the way through, the provisional nature of his arguments, that there's a lot here we don't understand. And particularly, he keeps saying, we don't understand what he calls the economics of mourning or the economics of pain, he says. Um, he means you know, the distribution of psychical energies, um, if you like, within a, within a mental system, an economics of mourning. Um, we don't really understand that. Now, in describe, and he, but he does say there is an intention at work in both mourning and melancholia, an implicit um, intentionality there, because it's characterized by our work. He uses the word, the notion of work, arbeit. So there, it isn't just a passive state that you endure, um, immobilized and swamped by emotions, right? There is a work of mourning, okay? Uh, a trauer arbeit. So something is, is being carried out, something is being performed. And he, he uses that formulation for both mourning and melancholia. There's a work of mourning, there's a work of melancholia. And he comments that, um, that you know, what he calls in the rather kind of scientific way, reality testing, um, demands a recognition that the object has been lost, the person's dead. Um, uh, and there must be, uh, a, 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 he, he tends to, though we're reliant on Strachey's translation, um, he tends to talk about a um, detachment um, or... Um, uh, a withdrawal of, of psychical energy and in particular of libido um, from the dead figure um, in the recognition that they're not here anymore. And he comments that um, on the whole human beings are extremely resistant to that kind of accommodation. Human beings are extremely resistant to abandoning their love objects uh, and to giving up a lib libidinal position. And that they, even in, an, in the ordinary, normal processes of mourning, they, uh, they cling to the lost object in their minds, in imagination. Um, and, that's, and the work of mourning is associated with that clinging to the lost object. In, and he, these are the terms he uses, in, a, in a, an hallucinatory wishful psychosis. An hallucinatory wishful psychosis. Now he's saying that even of mourning, which he's declaring to be non-pathological, but he's using a, uh, a, a clinical term like psychosis. Um, uh, and, the dis and just to recap the distinction between neurosis and psychosis, in, in neurosis the ego um, exercises um, a highly energetic uh, form of defense against taboo or forbidden or traumatic material by repressing it. Um, or by, um, in the various defense mechanisms in obsessional neurosis, by isolating it and fragmenting it and um, rendering it apparently um, trivial or meaningless in some way, um, or banishing it entirely from consciousness in the form of repression. Um, whereas in psychosis, the psychotic subject um, 
as, it, as it were, is swamped by uh, um, unconscious material, is unable to, is a failure of repression. Okay, so, or, or at best, the mechanisms that are associated with psychosis are not repressing something into, to internalizing it in a kind of policing sort of way into a specific mental system, viz. the unconscious, um, but projecting it outwards. Uh, and in, uh, in one school, in the Anglophone, and to some extent in Freud's own s school of psychoanalysis, the mechanism specific to, um, to, uh, to psychosis is projection. Okay. This, this disturbing traumatic material is projected outwards. It's nothing, it doesn't exist, it doesn't, I don't know about it. Um, and not that I banish it inside, but I project it outwards. And this is most obvious in paranoia, I guess, where um, uh, what's being um, repudiated returns in the form of um, hostile voices, hostile commentary, um, imagined persecutors, etc. Okay, so projection is specific to, 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 to psychosis as a form of, of repudiation or denial. And as a result, the world then is swamped by what you've projected into it. Okay? Um, uh, if you're denying uh, desire or denying rage or anger or hate um, by projecting it outwards, you then live in a world that's swamped with that feeling. It returns to you from the outside. Okay? It's the opposite of the return of the repressed from within. Okay, in the form of neurotic symptoms. You then live in a world that's swamped with the very thing you're denying or repudiating. Okay, so uh, the, the, the hallucinatory wishful psychosis is this wish that the loved one not be dead or not, not have abandoned one, not be gone. Okay, and, uh, uh, and the whole world is saturated uh, with that wish. But in mourning, it's a temporary phase. You cling to the love object, um, and you live out a continuing uh, hallucinated relationship to that, to the love object in, through memory and through fantasy uh, and through dreams, etc. Okay. A process then carried out gradually over a period of time. It takes time, um, uh, bit by bit. Uh, and as Freud says, the very um, lengthiness at times of the mourning process has a side effect. It, 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 um, on the one hand, it's, it's detaching you from the lost object, but it's also, in a sense, prolonging its existence in your mind or in your fantasy. Each single one of the memories, this is uh, one of the most discussed formulations of Freud, each single one of the memories and expectations in which libido was bound to the lost object is brought up, it's this metaphor that um, Laplanche is later to comment on, is brought up and uh, hyper-cathected is the English translation, but, but hyper-invested okay, um, with, uh, uh, with, with, with emotion and with desire, with, with, with psychical energy. Uh, and detachment of libido is accomplished in respect of it. Every single one of the memories and expectations in which libido is bound to the object is brought up, hyper-invested, and detachment of libido is accomplished in respect of it. And that, that's, in a sense, Freud's description of, of, the me of, uh, uh, of a fairly generalized kind, it must be said, of, of the process of mourning, uh, which will end with a kind of recouping back into the ego of, uh, of libido in order to sort of love again, as it were. But they, it, it's, it's, it's stri it seems to me striking that there is rather a leap here, from this notion of bringing up all the memories and expectations that were bound up with the lost loved person, 
Um, and in that process of going back over them, uh, hyper-investing them again, and then suddenly he says, and attachment is achieved. And that seems rather a leap. There's something missing. Right? How is attachment, how is detachment achieved? Right. Uh, and at that point, anyway, um, it's not specified, it's just a kind of conceptual leap in Freud's description. Um, and then he, 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 he says, when the work of, of mourning is completed, the ego becomes free and uninhibited again. So that's the end point, that's the telos, the, the, the aimed, normal, quotes, healthy outcome of mourning. Okay. Um, it's, complete, it's a process that can be completed, and it makes the ego free and uninhibited. So it's a, a teleological model, you could say. He wants to sort of, to some extent, to get a grip on this strange phenomenon of melancholia, partly position it in, 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 in an analogy, but an only partial analogy, with, with mourning that, um, described in the way um, he's just described it. Melancholia, too, he says, is a reaction to a loss of a loved object, okay. uh, uh, whether it's of a real person or of a more ideal kind. Um, and even if the loss is not clear or visible, that the patient is maybe unconscious of it, of what, of what they've lost. Or he reformulates it, the patient, the, the melancholic, knows whom he has lost, but not what he has lost in that person. So there's an unconscious dimension to the loss. Uh, melancholia is an object loss withdrawn from consciousness in contradistinction to mourning, in which there is nothing about the loss that is unconscious, he says. And you might want to pause over that and think, it's a very odd statement coming from Freud. Uh, mourning, which is an in intense, emotionally intense process, um, which absorbs the ego for uh, sometimes quite a long period of time, um, there is nothing about it that is unconscious? Really? Right? You might wonder about that. And it's part of this way of setting up mourning, I think, as some kind of apparently um, a disturbance of every, everyday mental functioning, but actually perfectly healthy and normal. There's nothing unconscious about it. Well, one might wonder about that. And it's certainly something that uh, Laplanche um, wants to challenge. So, but he wants to, by elaborating his analogy, there's a similar internal work in melancholia to mourning. Um, and one might wonder, well, okay, well, what's the aim? The aim of the work of mourning may be to achieve a final acceptance of loss uh, and that the relationship you had with the lost figure is now over um, uh, uh, and, um, and you have to come to terms with that loss. Uh, and you might then love somebody else uh, uh, as instead or as a replacement in some way. It does one really want to cover, uh, carry that idea over into melancholia? I think um, Freud's a bit conflicted about that. So in the, what is the work of melancholia? Well, you get some descriptive phrases. It involves a diminution of self-regard, an impoverishment of, of ego on a grand scale, uh, and a nice distinction. In mourning, it is the world that has become poor and empty. In melancholia, it is the ego itself. So in mourning, the world now seems a poorer place, that the loved one is no longer there. Okay, um, you've lost something, you've become diminished, the world seems a diminished place. Uh, in melancholia, the ego is depleted. Uh, the ego um, is, 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 is um, a drained of value. And this leads, he says, to a whole range of characteristic delusions, particularly a delusion of moral inferiority. You know, I'm a heap of shit. Um, 
uh, I'm worth nothing. Uh, I'm absolutely worthless. It's a kind of self-contempt um, and or despair, if you like. Um, and there's a series of symptoms like sleeplessness, a refusal to eat, and Freud wonders and marvels at an apparent overcoming of the instinct for life which compels every living thing to cling to life. So an internal work then is, is consuming the melancholiac ego, um, full of self-reproaches, which is one of the characteristics of melancholia which is absent in normal mourning and self-contempt. But he says, in the melancholic, um, there is no shame expressed. Instead, he says, there's an insistent communicativeness which finds a kind of satisfaction, a kind of gratification in, in self-condemnation, um, in self-exposure, um, in constant self-criticism. Um, so we have an object loss which has led to an ego loss, unlike mourning, and that leads him to a little... Um, uh, um, uh, uh, inserted section on the constitution of the ego and of the superego. At this point he hasn't got the phrase superego, but he's talking about an internal critical agency that judges the ego. Uh, so he's, and that, that's evolved out of that section in the narcissism paper on the ego ideal. Uh, uh, you'll recall that um, uh, the sequence there went um, the cons you know, out of the drives the ego is narcissistically constituted. Um, but that, that act of constitution is, as it were, modelled on um, the, uh, the parental fantasy of His Majesty the, the baby, the narcissistically loved infant. Um, uh, and that's what uh, Freud calls uh, the ideal or idealised ego, the narcissistically loved ego. Um, but at a certain point that must give way to that narcissistic ego must, as it were, um, develop into... Um, or transfer its narcissism into a, an ego ideal, which will be a, a model um, for the ego. Um, and so, uh, but will be nevertheless in some sense differentiated from the ego. So the idealized, the ideal ego or the idealized ego um, will transfer its narcissism into a new mental formation called the ego ideal. Um, and that's the germ of the idea of the superego, the critical agency, in which will be invested the origin, that, that, that infantile narcissism, um, it will be displaced into that. And I think th this idea becomes important in, in a few minutes for his definition of melancholia. So the notion of, of a critical agency which is associated with um, uh, the censorship in, in dreams, etc., is clearly pertinent to this this symptom of the dissatisfaction uh, uh, the ego has with itself on moral grounds in, in melancholia. And uh, this is often, it is not um, uh, uh, a self-criticism based on, he says, bodily infirmity, ugliness, social inferiority, but on a kind of moral inferiority. Um, and he says, insofar as there's another accusation that's characteristic, it's a, it's a fear of becoming poor, which is interesting, of losing money. <laughs> But he sees that entirely in terms of, um, of uh, money as a libidinal object. And he's saying that this, these violent accusations, um, in fact, um, quite often don't quite belong, they're not quite appropriate to the, the melancholic figure. Um, 
And even where they are accurate, and he has a little ironic moment about something, some people you think it, it takes them to be in a state of melancholia in order to kind of recognize their own, their own shortcomings. Even if what they're saying about themselves, what they're accusing of them, themselves with is true, and it's often not true at all, not, not remotely true, but even in cases where it is true, okay, it's just a certain use of truth, okay? The use of truth which is being put to the purposes of self-punishment. In other words, you're using certain reasonable critical reflections on yourself to beat yourself up. So it's the, it's the self-punishing use um, that, that, that um, uh, self-critical, truthful self-critical perceptions are put to that's the, that's the crucial thing here. And he says this is the key to the clinical picture, to trying to understand the clinical picture that these criticisms belong elsewhere. Uh, they're criticisms directed at another figure that have been shifted onto the ego. And he gives various little examples of a, uh, a wife, um, laments her own incapacities and her own, her own uselessness um, and pities her husband for having such a useless wife. Freud says, well, it's really, this is really, uh, 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 you know, particularly if the husband's de dead or uh, uh, this is really a criticism that's uh, addressed to the husband on whatever terms um, you may want to infer. Um, so the criticism belongs elsewhere, um, and um, one can sense that it's been a transferred criticism by the kind of noisiness of the melancholiac self-reproaches and self-criticisms. How, how they bang on about it, whereas if, uh, in other situations or in other cases, um, a person's sense of their own failure, they would be shame, ashamed of it, they would shut up about it, they wouldn't continually stage it or perform it, as it were. Uh, I think Hamlet's quite an interesting case here um, because Hamlet does have these moments, uh, he has moments of kind of manic energy uh, and, and a kind of wonderful um, demoniac wittiness and then he has moments where he's, he has these speeches about himself. He accuses himself of all kinds of crimes which he clearly well, as far as one can see, he hasn't committed. Um, uh, and he regards himself as a kind of moral reprobate, and uh, etc. And, and then he's sometimes prepared to generalize that to everybody, um, you know, treat everyone as they deserve and who shall escape whipping, he says. Okay, um, so the object relationship in melancholia has been shattered. Um, there's no displacement onto a new or substitute uh, uh, object to love instead. Um, and uh, he says libido is withdrawn back into the ego but it's only done this in a very peculiar way which is absent in normal processes of mourning through an identification with the abandoned object okay. and then the famous formulation of Freud's thus the shadow of the object fell upon the ego the shadow of the object in fact I might read that paragraph um, I think it's, it's quite important and very suggestive. In my edition, which is the standard edition photocopy, uh, it's on page 249. Um, so he's saying um, the result uh, in melancholia is not the normal one of a withdrawal of the libido from the lost object, a displacement of it onto a new one, but something different. Uh, the object uh, 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 the love of the object has proved to have little power of resistance and was brought to an end, but the free libido was not displaced onto another object, it was withdrawn into the ego. There, however, it was not employed in any unspecified way, like waiting 
for a new love object to come along, but serve to establish an identification of the ego with the abandoned object. An identification of the ego with the abandoned object. Thus, the shadow of the object fell upon the ego. And the latter could henceforth be judged by a special agency. The ego could be judged by a special agency as though it were an object, the forsaken object itself. In this way, an object loss was transformed into an ego loss. And the conflict between the ego and the loved person is then turned into something else, into a different drama. It's, it's, it's re-scripted, if you like, as a cleavage between the critical activity of the ego and the ego that's been altered by identification with the lost object. So the, uh, the, the drama that had been played out by the melancholiac between uh, himself and the lost object is now internalized. And Freud you know, kind of twists in a variety of ways about the implications to draw that or how you would understand the implications of that. Um, uh, and it, it leads to a sort of ambiguity in his argument as to what is meant by saying libido is drawn from the lost object back into the ego. Because in some sense that's clearly also what's happening in mourning. Okay? Though it's, though the, 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 the successfully completed mourning leads to uh, the capacity for the subject to love again and to turn uh, back again to the, to the world and to other people. Um, here, here it's not. Uh, and he sometimes wants to say libido is detached from the, uh, in the melancholia from the lost object and taken into the ego. And then the ego is identified with the lost object. So it leads one to wonder, well, hang on, has, you know, is, 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 is it really detachment that we're talking about? Uh, it's as if the conditions for the libido being drawn in to the ego is that the ego no longer be itself, that the ego in some sense assume uh, the identification with the lost object, which would lead one to, to infer that actually libido hasn't been detached at all from the lost object. It's been withdrawn or internalized only on the condition that I have so identified with the lost object, I've swallowed it psychically, a kind of psychical cannibalism, as it were. Indeed, that's the very account that Freud is later to give of identification, which we saw in chapter three of the ego and the id that we looked at last term, where Freud begins to theorize the complexity of ego formation through the way in which um, a succession of identity, identifications with, with people take, with formal, what were formerly love objects are then uh, turned into identifications, but only on condition. The, the libido was recouped back into the ego only on the condition of that mental assumption of the, uh, of the, re of the image or representation of the, of the loved object who has been given up as a love object. So it seems to me uh, ambiguous at best and possibly um, not the case uh, that, that this amounts to a real detachment. All right? It's just that the, the libidinal investment of the lost object has been shifted inwards and assumed by the ego. Now, one of the conditions that Freud talks about, um, one of the preconditions or uh, conditions for melancholia um, that distinguishes it from um, mourning ordinary mourning, is that the ambivalence, Freud introduces and stresses this notion of the ambivalence of libidinal or emotional ties, the capacity for love relations to turn into, love to turn into hate um, under certain conditions. And indeed, the hate, this, this, there's, there's a peculiar quality to 
hate. The hate that is the hate one has for someone one once loved. And I think that's different from, you know, you say you, one says one hates things. And one, one might hate political opponents, or one might, one might hate, if one was a Libyan, Colonel Gaddafi, or, or whatever, people who've done things to hurt or damage you. But the hate you have from, for a figure you once loved is just qualitatively different. It's not just a matter of quantity. Right? It's qualitatively different. And, and it's that ambivalence, I think, that Freud's interested in. And he, it's there in Obsession and Rosas, and he wants to say that this other little category he squeezes in between mourning and melancholia, which is, he calls um, pathological mourning, is when this notion of ambivalence kicks in, um, in and the person who's mourning uh, the lost object starts blaming themselves and saying, oh, it's really my, if only I'd looked after them better, or, you know, um, I never was a good enough child, or a good enough partner, or good enough whatever, um, uh, um, and to feel guilty, right? Your loved one dies, you feel guilty. Why? Okay. Um, you feel guilty because of the ambivalence, Freud argues, because of the ambivalence has been activated, either by their death or or maybe in the circumstances in which the relationship was uh, taking place. So ambivalence is, is, is pretty crucial in his... But he's saying melancholia has that ambivalence, but it has this extra thing, which is identification with the lost object. Okay. Now let me just continue that a bit. Um, so yes, so the ambivalent drama uh, that is being played out between the melancholic subject and the, uh, and the lost object um, uh, uh, is then internalised as a, as a drama between, um, and a very aggressive one, um, even Freud says in a sadistic one, between the critical agency and the um, guilty, incompetent, morally inferior, um, uh, impo impoverished ego. Okay, so a drama is played out um, which, uh, uh, for the melancholic, involves a kind of beat, a regular beating yourself up, uh, a regular intensified contempt. Um, for oneself, um, but oneself as, as something made over, in some ways, in the image uh, of the lost object. Uh, and this leads to a, a series of very um, interesting insights and, uh, and propositions. Um, but the this very telling metaphor, the shadow of the object fell upon the ego. Okay. Um, and that's the kind of, the metaphor, I think, that gives us the, um, the, the switch point, um, which, which, which turns mourning into melancholia. He even goes on to say, um, object love survives the object and takes refuge in a narcissistic identification with the object. Um, and he tends to see in the play of ambivalence, um, I'm, I'm a little... I'm wondering how true that is or whether it's only true sometimes. He tends to see hate functioning to, to achieve detachment from the object, okay? Whereas the other, side of, the other side of ambivalence, the continuing love, maintains the clinging to the lost object. Um, and that's kind of... I can see that having a certain force, but it also, I'm wondering if it's not a little too neat. Um, uh, so hate comes into operation on this substitutive object, uh, abusing it, debasing it, making it suffer, and he says, deriving a real sadistic gratification, a kind of sadistic pleasure in, in the drama of aggression and contempt uh, for oneself, but really uh, for, the, for the lost object whom one is now impersonating or, or representing or becoming in some way. 
Um, he says it's a self-tormenting which is no doubt enjoyable, satisfying in a sadistic sense. It's amazing the number of ex-Marxists that turn up in the Tory party. Eric Pickles, can you believe it? Comrade Pickles, he found this out recently, you know. Um, so there's something about that kind of flip that can take place, you know. Um, even at the level of, well, maybe especially at the level of politics, okay. Uh, so the, in the melancholia, the, eret the original erotic relationship, the lib original libidinal investment or cathexis, splits off into a regressive narcissistic identification with the lost object. And then, and he never quite follows this connection or thought through. Um, uh, it gets taken up in the ambivalence, um, in, in ambivalence, and is, finds expression through the um, critical agency, or the, let's call it the superego's sadistic <coughs> treatment of the ego. And he says sadism then solves the riddle of suicide. Because you know, Freud, it's a real problem. How can you, given the strength of the, the life instincts, actually kill yourself? You know, what are the processes could, uh, that could allow that to happen? And he says the ego can only kill itself if it can treat itself as an object, can turn uh, the object hate against itself. And his wonderful epigram, suicide is unconscious murder. Suicide is unconscious murder. When you kill yourself, you're really killing someone else in yourself. Um, suicide is an aggressive act aimed at someone else who's surviving you. And then, again, another one of his, his, his um, provocative or teasing epigrams. Um, being in love and suicide are very similar in some respects, he says. <laughs> right. In both states, ego, the ego is overwhelmed by the object. The ego is overwhelmed by the object, almost erased by it. Um, I, think, I think I want to make the connection, because it will lead into some of our discussions in the seminar, um, uh, th th that very powerful metaphor of the, sh the shadow of the lost object, because you see something very like that in the poem of Poe's that I asked you to read, The Raven. Okay? And the interesting thing about The Raven as a poem, um, if you compare it to see the run of short stories, we're going to be discussing. Um, uh, in the short stories, they're all about dead women, but dead women who in some form come back. So the image of the woman is split or doubled. Okay? Uh, and I think, in, in, except in the case of the horrific story of Berenice, um, uh, the woman comes back in some form, in Ligia, in the House of Usher, in Morella, in Eleonora, okay? Uh, the dead woman returns in some way, or the, and there's a second woman very often. And sometimes the second woman is the dead woman, or she isn't the dead woman, but becomes the dead woman. Okay? Um, and that doesn't happen in The Raven. Okay? I think that's really interesting. In The Raven, the, the lot, you keep thinking, she's going to come in. You know, he hears a tapping at the door, and then, he, and then at the window, and he opens the window, and in comes the, black, the dark raven, and he addresses a whole series of questions to the raven. He plays out in this way that's kind of a very edgy black comedy. Um, you know, a, a whole series of things in relation to this silent bird who can just say one word, who's been trained by some former owner to say just one word over and over again, never more. Never more, never more. Um, and you keep thinking, well, on, when is the lost Lenore, who rhymes with nevermore and whose name is mentioned you know, through rhyme after rhyme in stanza after stanza, when is she going to come back? You keep, first time round when you read it, you keep expecting that Lenore, like Ligia and Madeline and Morella and all the others, is going to kind of come back and that the raven is kind of like she's sent ahead of herself in some way. Okay. 
Um, but what the poem ends um, with him turning angrily against the raven who just keeps sitting there silently saying nevermore um, and uh, uh, abusing it. Um, uh, and he, tells, he t- tries to get rid of it uh, in the last two stanzas. Uh, uh, the raven yet again quoth the raven nevermore be that word our sign of parting bird or fiend I shrieked upstarting get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore leave no black plume as a token that thy li- of that lie thy soul has spoken leave my loneliness unbroken quit the bust above my door take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door, quoth the raven, nevermore. Now the lie that he says the raven has um, spoken implicitly um, is uh, a question that he's just addressed to the raven, saying, shall I meet the lost Lenore in some radiant heaven? You know, shall we be happily ever after? Shall we be united? And of course the raven's answer is nevermore, nevermore. So um, the mourning lover turns against him and says, get out. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. This time it's the lover who says nevermore and not the raven. There's this curious shift of verbal tense where if you're thinking of what is the present time of the poem, um, we're thinking all this is an event that happened in the past, okay? Uh, And there was something, some upshot that he's going to tell us about at the end of the poem, okay? Something came of this strange event. Either Lenore came back or something happened and then we find out that actually nothing happened and that he's still there in his room, and the present situation of the poem is not a situation of after, afterness, afterwardsness, if you like, on the other side of this, of this moment, but the raven still is sitting, still is sitting. Uh, okay, and he's casting his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. The lover is then permanently uh, trapped within uh, the shadow cast by uh, cast by the by the raven, and he himself then croaks out um, the word "nevermore," uh, rather than the raven. He's been, as it were, absorbed into whatever it is that this um, monosyllabic dark figure um, represents. In his essay on the poem, um, in his essay on the poem. Poe says that the poem is about uh, a mournful and never-ending remembrance. A mournful and never-ending remembrance, i.e. melancholia. Okay, and the same metaphor of being trapped within the shadow of the lost object, I think, that Freud uses is there elaborated more poetically and more fully at the end of of Poe's poem. I'm I'm wanting to tease out... um, a certain ambivalence, uh, as I've said, or not ambiguity, let me say, rather, in Freud's arguments about melancholia, because he, he never quite abandons the proposition that he's derived by analogy that melancholia also is concerned, finally, 
with breaking the ties, with getting over it, okay? by detaching oneself from the, from the lost object. Even if you have a love-hate relationship with the lost object, even if you become the love object uh, and beat yourself up about okay, and take it out uh, on yourself um, as, as the lost object uh, in, a, in, a, in a violent, aggressive way. Um, the aim, somehow or other, and that's why he signs hate a function, the function of detachment. The aim seems, is never quite repudiated by Freud, that that must be the final goal of melancholia as well as mourning. Okay? But there are other elements in, in the essay that are pulling in a different direction. Elements that are suggesting that actually melancholia is about continuing the relationship with the lost object, not ending it. And this is a conclusion that Freud never quite draws out. So there, but, but it's there in the essay. There are formulations in the essay that are looking in that direction. And later, um, later post-Freudian analysts will, will pick that one up and run with it. Okay? Such that one might want to say, um, and I'm anticipating next week's theorists, Nicholas Abraham and Maria Tarok, um, that me melancholia is in fact a refusal to mourn. Not a refusal to grieve, not a refusal to sorrow or to weep or to, uh, or to be distressed, but a refusal to mourn. Mourn being a process by which you accommodate yourself to loss and overcome uh, that loss and recuperate yourself psychically okay, in order to move on. Melancholia is about not moving on. The refusal to mourn, in fact, one could almost say. And that's implicit there at different moments in Freud, though I think it's at odds with his overall assumption that he carries through, even into the mania section of the paper, that it's about detachment. <coughs> okay. And it leaves him then with a problem about quite how to how explain mania. He can describe it and he can begin to sort of um, uh, pose certain kinds of uh, formulations about mania and how mania is related to melancholia. Um, that it's a moment, a phase of temporary triumph over the lost object, so that all the energies that were involved um, uh, are in uh, this continued but, but, but sadistic relationship to the lost object. And we certainly see a sadistic relationship to the lost object in Poe's short stories, um, or, or even if you were the lost object <laughs> and the lost object's coming back at you, so to speak, there is a sadomasochistic drama going on between the dead and the, and the, mor and the mourner, the dead figure and the mourner. Um, mania, he says, is a way of overcoming that, a phase of momentary triumph in which all the, the libidinal energies that have been involved in that relationship are genuinely, if temporarily, recouped, regrouped, um, and, and, and discharged in a kind of uh, manic self-celebration, okay? uh, in which uh, suddenly the ego is uninhibited, it feels that the manic ego can do anything, nothing can be an obstacle, um, uh, the person in a manic phase generates all wild and impossible projects and ambitions, is on a not on a perm, is in a high, a high energy state, and then, you know, that will then rapidly, uh, uh, and sometimes very soon, sort of, overturned back into um, uh, a, a melancholic and depressed state again. Um, the problem is trying to think through the nature of those moments or phases of triumph in which a kind of uh, a triumphant um, disinhibiting of the ego appears to take place. And I think one, one can really only think about that manic phase if you've, uh, if, if you've actually drawn a slightly different conclusion from Freud 
to say that melancholia is not another more pathological, more, more um, self-harming way of reaching the same end, ultimate detachment from the lost object, but it's a refusal to detach from the lost object. It's a way of continuing, however perverse a relationship, to the lost object. Okay, let's finish there.